Presents a music and talk show where your host Darren Roebuck is joined by a variety of artists, scientists, entrepreneurs, and therapists as they share what's on their minds and give you new ideas and practices to help you get the most out of being you. Can you dig it? Be sure to visit deeporbitstudio.com for links, show notes, and more. Now sit back and take in the view while we blast off into Deep Orbit. to Deep Orbit Studio Presents. I'm your host, Darren Roebuck, and sitting here with me today is the esteemed Kareem Ibish. And uh, normally I give a big introduction regarding the, my guest's accomplishments, and in this case, it's such a lengthy list, I'm just going to let him tell it. Well, thank so, you. Kareem, welcome to the show. Tell us thank a little bit about, about yourself. Thank you so much, Darren. I really didn't want to bore your, uh, your listeners with a long list of accomplishments. In this regard, I really only have a few. I'm basically a producer and a lawyer, and a man with no musical talent whatsoever. And that really left me wanting to get into the business in a different sort of a way. And the way that I did that was really by first becoming an immense fan. I became a fan of the music that my parents liked. I became a fan of the music that my sister, my half-sister, 18 years my senior liked. And that really set me up to do all of the work that I've done in music production. Bringing the law with me, of course, made a big difference. And that's where I was able to produce things that the, uh, the musicians themselves wouldn't have been able to do, contracts and things like that. Um, and keep your eye on the money, which is something that the musicians have a tendency to lose track of. What? You mean musicians aren't good with contracts or money? When, when did that develop in the music industry? Well, actually, you know, what developed was the musician's sense that if they can write the songs and play them, they must know what to do with them after that. And that's, you know, that, there's, there's a lot that you can do wrong once you've got the stuff even in the can. So that was my job. I always thought of it as, as a behind the scenes, as, as some, somebody who wouldn't necessarily be interviewed. It, it, when you asked <laughs> me to, it was kind of a, a surprise. But it was something that, uh, that I suppose I should have expected because there's enough here to actually make something interesting. So as I was saying, I, I, I got the love of music from my parents. And especially my mother gave me the love of classical music. And so after I graduated from law school, I really didn't want to be a lawyer like uh, everybody else. And so I, I created a classical music company and a recording company. And, and we, we produced recordings uh, in the mid-1990s, which, um, which I'm still very, very proud of. We did uh, single microphone, stereo left and right recordings of classical music in uh, beautiful acoustic environments. And we selected our musicians very, very carefully. Of course, we didn't have the money for orchestras, but we were very, very lucky with some of the people we could work with. And um, in, in this regard, the, the first track that I want to play you is uh, probably my favorite. It was the first CD that we recorded, and it was really why... I wanted to get into making classical music recordings in the mid-1990s. Uh, a friend of mine's father 
was a brilliant harpsichord and uh, fortepiano player, uh, professional and a, a genius at this. He was part of the early music movement, which brought back the original instruments and the original tunings and revitalized, I think, Baroque music and early classical music. This particular recording we made using an original 1793 fortepiano, one that was built in the 18th century. Wow, where'd you find that? Well, he owned it. Um, he bought it years ago and spent decade learning the technique and researching the music and, and, and doing all that, all the time trying to convince the IRS that it wasn't a toy <laughs> and that he should be able to deduct the, the, the expense. But um, he... On this instrument, you can play early Beethoven piano sonatas in the manner that they were composed. The piano changed a lot over Beethoven's lifetime. It went from being a small instrument like the one that we have here to being something more like the instrument that we have today. And in this recording, the, because it's a small instrument with a very uh, sharp decay as compared with a modern instrument, which has a very long decay, um, you're able to play, or Igor is actually able to play this, with the original instruction that Beethoven wrote in the score being applied, which is to lift the dampers for this movement and leave them up the entire time. If you do this with a modern piano, it will become a muddy mess. All of the, the score indicators that the piano should drop the, the, the dampers onto the strings are invented by somebody else subsequently. This is how Beethoven wrote it. This is the instrument for which Beethoven wrote it. And with this instrument and the tuning and the decay, you get the color that Beethoven originally intended. Wow, this is really interesting. And for those of you uh, out there that don't know, the difference between a piano forte and a piano has really to do with the number and length of the strings, if I'm correct. Well, that, that, it's an early version. Um, this is a 63 keyboard instrument and um, it has two strings for each note except for the last octave which are one it's one string so this is a lot fewer strings and a lot smaller an instrument if you saw it you'd think it was a harpsichord because it's a piano and a harpsichord case and the pedal isn't a pedal actually it's a, a little a knee um, lever that you lift the the dampers by uh, lifting your heel off of the ground oh, and, and keeping your and pressing thigh. up with your thigh. He, as, as Igor put it, you play kneesies with this instrument <laughs> instead of footsie. So um, this is what Igor did. And um, it, it, you can hear the piano a little bit in the recording. Um, the space, I'd like to talk a little bit about mm. uh, the space that we recorded it in. It's a barn, a 19th century post and beam hand hewn barn that was basically an acoustic sieve. Um, you couldn't clip this room. And it was so rich and so warm, an environment, that when we took this 18th century instrument in there, it was just, it was amazing. We gave a concert the day before in which he played the program mm -hmm. and then sat down the next day and started uh, four days of recording so that it was very fresh and very uh, immediate. We wanted that immediacy of the, of the concert experience. So um, why don't we let your, your listeners hear Igor Kipnis playing the first movement of the Beethoven's uh, Moonlight Sonata. All right, and here we are. This is Deep Orbit Studio Presents.
but hey, I have to go back and listen. All right. That was... Oops. Ha. <laughs> that was Igor Kripnis. Kipnis. Kipnis. Igor Kipnis playing the Forte Piano, Moonlight Sonata from Beethoven. Uh, and that is from... The Epiphany Recordings label that uh, Kareem Ibish I put together with uh, with Igor's son Jeremy, mm-hmm. and uh, and Igor was our A and R director. He uh, got us a lot of uh, other musicians because he's well respected in the field. He brought us a lot of other people to record, and um, we ended up uh, making some recordings with more recordings with him, some of his friends and acquaintances, and uh, ended up. Uh, at the Yale University recording the Yale Russian Chorus. It was one of my uh, favorite of our recordings. Um, We also got a chance to uh, record the Mander tracker organ at the Church of St. Ignatius Loyola in New York, which is an absolutely enormous instrument. It has 16-foot and 32-foot stops. The, 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 The line between sound and simple vibration is ca- is crossed by this instrument all the time, and you're, you're hearing stuff and just sort of being shaken around by it at the we, same time. Y- you are lifted off of the floor. You distinctly weigh less in the presence of these <laughs> large uh, uh, organ pipes, uh, pipes. Yeah. and you and you you are vibrated in harmonic. Uh, uh, ways that it definitely, if you're not prepared for this, it could seem like a divine visitation. And if you are prepared for it and the music is right, it is a divine visitation. It's truly, a, a, a you step into an instrument and building which are together and you're inside of this thing. And we brought our single stereo microphone and put it there. I would love to have brought some of that for your listeners to listen to. It's very, very did you, difficult music. Did you ever to... record like like Radar Love or uh, or Louie Louie or no. any of those other good organ songs? Uh, unfortunately, no, the, the Monsignor who was uh, helping us would not have approved of that sort of thing. Um, they, they, they were very nice to allow us to record the, the instrument. And, it's holy music, if you ask me. Well, actually, we didn't record any uh, liturgical music on that instrument. It was a, a, a recreation of a 19th century uh, uh, French style of organ. And the music for that is, there's some of it which is liturgical, but a lot of it was not. It was just secular music, and that's pretty much what we recorded. Anyway, I didn't bring any of that because mm-hmm. the, the organ is, a, is, a, is not for everybody, shall we say. <laughs> and especially the romantic uh, 19th century organ, large dissonant chords and impossibly long phrases. You really have to want to listen to this music. Um, but what instead I brought was some of the Yale Russian course. Cool. That we, um, this is actually a, a student activities club at Yale University. And one of the things that I didn't realize about the place is that it has an incredible tradition of student singing, um, even to the point where they sang Russian liturgical music through the Cold War very happily because that was a traditional thing for them to do there. It was kind of unusual. They have all kinds of glee clubs and singing clubs, and it's a great way to get into skull and bones, apparently. Um, <laughs> no, if you're a great bass baritone, this is one of the, one of the ways in. Um, if, in fact, Prescott Bush, the father of... George the First was invited to join 
Skull and Bones because he was the best bass baritone that they had heard in a generation. Um, no more significance than that. And then it went on. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah. at the time, it was just simply he was the best bass baritone anybody had heard for a while. Wow. So they have this tradition there. And um, the, the director, Mark Bailey, is a great scholar of this kind of music. And he did a, a, a wonderful job putting together the program. The piece that we're going to listen to is just over a minute long. Uh, uh, Turkenov is one of my uh, favorite of the composers that I got introduced to by doing this music. The only ones that I had heard of prior were people like Rachmaninoff and Tchaikovsky and, and those people. But this fellow wrote some simply gorgeous music, and it's all about the harmony. Okay, so this name is incredible. Razboynika Blagorzovikagago. Yeah. It's Russian and it means the wise thief. This this thief actually we we would probably call him the lucky thief. He was uh the one of the ones who was crucified along with Jesus and regardless of his sins was saved because he was there when that happened. Very good move. All right. Career move. That was a good one. A good career move. <laughs> Very nice. This is the wise thief. Well, clearly not one for American Bandstand. No, um, that but, music is written for a very specific purpose. That's liturgical music. That's for the purpose of conducting an, a Christian Orthodox liturgy. But those harmonies, and you're saying that that was one, one microphone in a stone chapel recording how many people singing? Um, probably about uh, 18 or so. Uh, of them. I've forgotten exactly how many now. It was about 18 kids, all of them undergrads. That's what's so amazing to me about that is just, you know, it's just rehearsal and practice and, and raw talent that gets you sounds like that. It's, it, it's no studio magic there. It's the director. I got to tell you, this is a student activities club. I don't think that they cut anybody. I think that they just had a really great director who was able to take people who were interested in singing this kind of music, which is not everybody, and really get them to do something which uh, is absolutely professional when they're not at all. These are undergraduates. Wow, that's cool. So where can we find this stuff? Well, uh, if you can look online, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the Yale Russian Chorus has put this stuff out there. So mm -hmm. you can look for it there. 
Um, I, however, uh, am very excited because the Pono player is coming. See, back in the mid-1990s when we were making these recordings, we were recording them 24-bit digital audio. Um, we were doing it at 96 kilohertz. Now they have uh, 24-bit 196 kilohertz signals, which you can get for the Pono player. This is a very, very dense, very high-quality digital audio, previously unavailable, much better quality than the CD, not quite what the SA CD is, but it, it doesn't get confused with the five-channel thing that, the, that they did with SA CD, which I think distracted people from the notion of what one-bit digital audio is. And I could tell your listeners all about one-bit digital and 24-bit and all of this stuff, but let's just put it this way. Back in the 1990s, mid-90s, I was making recordings because I thought we were going to get higher quality digital audio for the consumer. It went the other way. It went to MP3s. It went to lower quality digital audio for the consumer simply so that you could get it all down telephone lines and you could store it on uh, smallish hard drives, at least compared with what we have today. And it, it meant that the digital audio just went to hell in a handbasket, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, and it's only now, many, many years later, coming up on 20 years later, that a consumer format that can actually reproduce what we recorded in the mid-1990s is being released. And therefore, I'm very excited about putting this stuff back out there. And that's the Pono player. The Pono player. It's uh, been... Um, um, advertised by Neil Young, and um, it has some, some good people behind it. Lots of artists are in favor of this stuff. Uh, the circuit topology of the, of the player is remarkable because it has discrete left and right channel all the way through it, and I, I'm unfamiliar with any other portable digital audio player that does anything like that. And um, the, the new format that they're going to use, this 24-bit, 196-kilohertz format, is not going to have any digital rights management. So you're not going to have the problem with, well, I copied it onto this computer, but now I bought a new computer, or I have a different player, or a different this, or a different that. They, these guys have decided all of that was nonsense. It got in the way of the consumer enjoying the music. And if you're going to pay them for it, you might as well own it, at least that sure. copy of it. Got to do so, that with my LPs. And, uh, LPs and, and with your CD. Yeah. Um, nobody thought when CDs first came out that we would ever be able to store 100 CDs onto a computer. But it's easy now. And um, the, the, the use of digital rights management uh, has really messed with uh, the ease and, and usability of uh, digital audio. And that's not going to happen with this. So I'm really excited about the prospect. Yeah, you know, I am too. And that, that's, you know, people talk bad about Napster. But I think the only crime that they really committed was by making MP3s popular. Actually, that, I would agree with that. They committed no crime whatsoever. It's mm -hmm. very interesting, if, if you have a background in the law, to ask yourself what happened with Napster. Because these uh, rights holders, the, the companies, the, the record companies, um, prevented d digital audio tape from becoming a consumer format on the basis that, well, if we release this, then people will be able to make exact one-to-one -one copies of all of our stuff and we'll lose all of this money to pirating. So they bought Congress effectively and passed a statute that they had written, which said uh, we're going to get royalties for every blank digital audio tape that is sold, as though they know what we're going to do with that. 
And um, but it's okay to make a single one-to-one digital copy. Well, these people don't understand their own technology. Napster was nothing <laughs> but single one-to-one digital copies, peer-to-peer digital copy. That's all it was. It was perfectly legal under the statute they had bought Congress to pass. And I was laughing my head off until I realized, of course, they did manage to stop it. And they did get MP3s popularized. And yes, Apple Computer went on to make more money on music than they have on computers. Mm -hmm. And that's remarkable. It is remarkable. Well, I look forward to the Pono Player just from the the audio aspect where it's true stereo, it's higher higher resolution than anything you can currently Even buy. Even if you're listening and to a typical CD, Red Book Standard CD, coming off of that player, because it's discrete left and right audio, you're going to get a much, much better true. signal to your headphones. Yeah, you'll be getting sounds like you get if you were in the recording studio, listening on all the high-end pro audio it's, equipment. It's as close as you can get to that without without going down there and, and, and finagling your way in. And spending millions of dollars to... Well, that's if gear. you have to have one for yourself. Yes. And, yeah. So, uh, you know, mentioning all the, the legal stuff here, obviously you, have, you are a lawyer. Well, yes, for my sins. I, I, I did. <laughs> I attended law school. I, I enjoyed law school. And, and then I sort of avoided the practice by going into this uh, classical music thing. But when I moved out to Colorado, um, I did so in order to practice law. And I came out here and, and passed the, uh, the bar exam and um, was sort of wondering what kind of law I would practice. And I fell almost accidentally into representing children in the juvenile justice system. And it was something that really motivated me. Um, Meaning children criminals or well, uh, children mixed up in other people's... Well, yes, they Mis- were accused. Misdeeds? No, they were accused. Okay. Um, I was defense counsel. And it, you know, it looked and felt in every regard like a criminal prosecution. It's not, technically speaking, if they're charged as juveniles, it's a different system. It's not, technically speaking, a crime. They're not found guilty of a crime. They are adjudicated delinquent as a result of having violated a criminal statute. It's kind of a, it's kind of a, a, a weird distinction, but it's important because it means you don't have a criminal record if you have a juvenile record, and it can be wiped out. But you can always be charged as an adult any time they like in the state of Colorado after you're 14. So. Wow. So I can only imagine being in that situation for so many years that you had to have seen... Some pretty crazy stuff. Well, you see the run of the mill thing so frequently that it almost becomes routine. What would be run of the mill? Run of the mill are are kids picked up for shoplifting. Minor in possession of alcohol. They make a lot of money on that one. Um, the, the, The traffic stuff. If you're a kid, okay. one of the best ways to get in trouble is to get a driver's license and start driving around. <laughs> because they really don't cut you any slack. They want to take your driver's license away. And I made more money by doing flat fee $500 trials on minor in possession for the simple reason that whether the kid was anywhere near a car, if they are adjudicated delinquent on the basis of minor in possession, their right to drive is suspended. They'd have no more driver's license. And you can imagine these bolder parents who are looking at me saying, but there was no car anywhere around. And now what, it falls on their heads 
Because what do you think? That these, these parents are going to allow their kids to not go to the practice, to the rehearsal, to the whatever that they were all doing? No, these parents now have to drive them just like they did when they were 12, right? But they bought that car so that they could be free. And now here comes the state to say, no, 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 you've got to drive your kids around again. And they were, they were angry. And I would always tell them, you're going to lose. <laughs> All we're going to do here is make the DA work for a living and eat up some of the court time so that they feel it a little as they take your freedom away. So this was the average every day. That's the average every day. And so what was sort of a, an outlier case, if you're allowed to talk about it? <laughs> yeah, I can tell you. Well, I'll give you one that's amusing and then one that's not so amusing. One time uh, I got a call from the clerk of the court. She said, Karim, you've been appointed on a case. Uh, your, your client has threw a battery at another kid. Come on down. I got the message, but I didn't go down to the court for a while because I was busy that day. And I didn't get there until like maybe 3 or 3.30. And she hands me this case with, you know, the, 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 the filing with a little smirk. And I look down at this thing and it's a direct file, which means the kid has been charged as an adult. And the charges are attempted murder and first degree assault. Well, it turns out it was a car battery. Not, not, <laughs> he didn't yeah. throw a double A at him. No, he didn't throw a double A. He threw a car. A well, car drop, drop the car battery is probably better. Anyway. Wow. So, yeah. So that's the sort of thing that is the outlier case. And the extreme outlier cases, they really mean it when they charge the kid as an adult. See, in that case, I was able, by putting them through the preliminary hearing process, to get them to drop it back into the juvenile system because he was a kid, and the person whose head was hit by the car battery was not somebody they wanted to wrap in the American flag and lead into court. So <laughs> they decided that it would be okay if it was a juvenile case. But then there were cases where they didn't decide that and where they really meant it. Um, sometimes the juvenile justice system, the justice system crosses over into the political system and cases become in the, in the press and uh, then they change completely. Then you have a totally different case. You have one under the spotlight. Now the fact that the district attorney is a politician who's directly elected by the people is extremely important in your calculations. Now is when the judges know that, that press will be in their courtroom. And they, it changes everything. There was a case um, that I did that is a great example of this. I wasn't the only attorney on the case. There were three of us for the defendant. Um, there were a series of murders back in 98, 99 uh, in Denver of homeless people. The idea in the press was that there was some sort of a turf war between the mall rats, the kids, and the older homeless people who tended to be uh, alcoholic, whereas the, the younger kids tended to use other intoxicants. And the idea was that there was a, uh, a turf war going on between them. Well, there were seven murders, and two of the last ones included decapitations, which is certainly going to get your newspaper interested. And they only ever brought one of these murders to trial. 
And they charged three people and separately tried them. My client was the only one who was less than 18 years old. There was an 18-year-old and there was a 19 or 20-year-old, I've forgotten. The case was purely based on co-defendants' accusations. It stunned me that the police could be this myopic. But they had in their station, under interrogation, one of the people who eventually admitted doing this. It was a, an attack on a sleeping homeless black man, which rendered him unconscious, and he later died. They had this kid there, and they were questioning him, 18-year-old kid being questioned by 50, 60-year-old homicide detective. They found out that he had been there. They got him to admit that before they got him to admit that he had in any way participated in the assault. What he told them was that his friends, Little Chris and Yogi, had done this thing and that they took him there later and he walked through some blood and that that's why there was blood on his trousers. You know, remember at this time the kids wore trousers that touched the ground, right? These little street sweeper things. So um, that, that was his initial lie. They later discover in this course of the same interview that his friend Yogi is made up name for his friend Trip, who ends up being a co-defendant. They never ask the question, if you've made up a name to tell the police to protect your friend, don't you make up a name to tell the police to protect yourself? But they already had little Chris, you see. They had him in custody. They could charge him too. And the idea to the police apparently is that charging three people is 50% better than charging two people, and that's what they did. And they bought the testimony from this kid, the only testimony that took my client to the scene was from him. They bought that with a 30-year sentence that he agreed to at the age of 18. Can you believe it? I cannot believe it. That's the sort of thing that I did. That's the sort of work that I did. Wow. Yeah. I can certainly understand why you would have wanted to walk away from that. Walk away? My God. When, when the jury <laughs> went in on that case with the life of a 16-year-old, we were potentially going to be the first defense team in the United States of America to have had a juvenile sentence to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. That could have happened. That's incredible. Well, when you see the jury walk away... You've just spent nine months of your life doing practically nothing else. I mean, you have other cases, but this is the one. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, there's no more work you can do. Suddenly, it's like time stops. It's as though you've jumped off of a diving board, and now you're going to find out if there's water in the pool. And you're in that moment. And it lasted for five days. Wow. Yeah. I don't think I've ever had that kind of a stress outside of something that might kill me. Um, nothing 
ever matched that. And I was just the lawyer. I mean, I wasn't accused. I wasn't the mother of the accused. I wasn't the, you know, the, 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 the relation of the victim. I wasn't any of that. And the jury came back on a compromise verdict. Which means? Well, see, when, when the jury is instructed, they are instructed you could find the defendant guilty of first-degree murder or you could find the defendant guilty of second-degree murder or you could find the defendant guilty of manslaughter. Or you could find the defendant not guilty. These are the four choices that you have. So this is laid out this way really to encourage a compromise verdict because really ultimately either the kid was there and did it or he didn't. And that is what they should be asking the jury to decide. But it's not. Instead, they give these four choices and it's very clear that's the worst, the second worst, the third worst and not bad. Go, right? Mm-hmm. It's very clear how these things work. And they came back on manslaughter. Because I think it was, there was somebody on the jury who wanted to acquit. There was somebody on the jury who wanted to convict of first-degree murder. And they came to a compromise. They compromised on the life of a 16-year-old boy. I was horrified. Yeah, I'd be horrified, too. But you can't, you, yeah, I mean, this is the jury system. That, that we, we, we take the good and the bad. So this kid, looking at these charges... Plus uh, additional charges for things that he wrote to his co-defendants, which they then kindly handed over to the uh, prosecuting attorneys, which included threats. <laughs> but not that he could act on any of these threats. He's, he's sitting in the, in the detention, not in the juvenile detention, mind you, in the adult detention, in his cell 23 hours a day. Because they have to segregate him from the adult population. So they do to him what they would do to an adult who was being punished. And they just do that just because he's 16. That should be age discrimination. But it's not. I did argue it to the judge, by the way, that that was age discrimination. He just laughed at me. Anyway, um, they came back. The kid got sentenced to 16 years in prison when he was 16 years old. Wow. That's, and uh, he was looking at possibly so life, life with no. It's not. <laughs> Guess <laughs> what? It, it, Darren, in his mind, it had Darren. He's out. Darren. He was one of the last people to take an associate's degree through the prison system. While you could still do that, they've ended that program. Oh, wow. He has no tattoos. He works for a living and he pays taxes. He made 40-something thousand dollars a year. I I spoke with him the other day. He's doing fine. How he made it through this is a remarkable story. But it's kind of the flip side of the story I just told you. They were so interested in punishing him as an adult. They were so intent on that that by the time they sent this 5-foot, 535-pound white kid from Boulder down to Canyon City, he was the darling of everybody. The administrators, the guards, the Aryan nations, everybody loved him. Because he was so publicized. Because he was the only child in the place. (laughs) He was everybody's nephew. He was everybody's nephew. Everybody coddled him. I mean, the Aryan nations coddled him for the love of God. Okay? (laughs) Not exactly. Not who you would expect to do that sort of thing. And they did. The most nurturing group in the world. Not the most nurturing people on the face of the planet. But they took care of him for the first few years. He moved away from them because they would have involved him in their. But they protected him for a couple of years there. And he accepted that protection because he needed it. He needed to grow up. See, he spent 12 years in prison from 16 to 28. 
Wow. And that was a juvenile case? I don't think so. So, because of obvious pressures, uh, you chose to leave your law practice. Oh, my God. Well, yes. You see, you do a few cases like that, and you realize where your limits are. And my limit was I could, I could work with the system, and I could make some differences for this client or for that client, but I couldn't make any difference for the system. And at a certain point, you get tired of beating your head up against the wall. And I, I did. I burned out on this. I burned to a crisp. By the time I was ready to walk away, I, I remember the day. I'll never forget it. I was sitting at the Café Soleil, where I often have coffee, and I finished the last conversation with the last client that I had. And I took the telephone that had the only number that anybody associated to the law had for me and threw it in the trash can and walked away. It was like my articles of manumission had come through. I'm no longer a slave. I was no longer an officer of the court. Well, I'm still an officer of the court, but I no longer had any pending cases before the court. I had no responsibility. I didn't have to go down there anymore. It was great. And I, I, I topped this by engaging in what my mother called my midlife crisis. And I went back to music. I went back to the rock and roll, not to the classical. I needed a little release. And boy, did I get it. I got it in the form of, of the best rock and roll I'd heard in 25 years. A form of rock and roll that I would have thought when I was first, had first come to the United States would have been impossible to be really popular here because it has this polyrhythmic uh, presentation, which I remember back in the 80s when they were bringing, trying to find the next Bob Marley, and they were looking all over Africa, and they were bringing us King Sunny Ade and Yuzundor and all of these people, and there was great music, but it just didn't click with people because the polyrhythmic thing didn't click with people. And then I went down and I saw this band. And my jaw hit the floor because there it was, the polyrhythmic thing being presented and accepted without the smallest hesitation by people from the generation rising behind me. I was so happy, I can't begin to tell you. And I, I, I met some of these guys in the band and I got to know them and I became their tour manager and I got on the bus and I spent a year and a half running around the Western United States with them, playing little dive bars and huge festivals and everything in between, having a great time washing that stuff out of my being to the point where I actually felt clean. And it's the, the, the energy that these people produced on stage. It's the, the, just the, the raw, sweaty rock and roll thing that you can't beat with a stick. Um, the, the track that I've selected here is uh, a live one. I think this band was always best live. Um, it was from a show where I attended. It was just before I, I got involved with them professionally. I was in the audience at the Fox Theater. It was tremendous. This uh, song is called Animal Angel, and I think it really demonstrates what Kanal was all about beautifully. All right, here's Kanal, a little bit of Kareem's midlife crisis. Uh, let's see if it... <laughs> can clean your souls too. Uh, check this out. I, I heard this track a second ago. It is so good.
Suddenly it's so obvious It's all a game, it's all a dream Wake up Wake up So that was Canal at the Fox Theater. Uh, and Canal still plays these days. Well, they only play one uh, show a, a year now. They play at the Arise Festival, which is a, a wonderful uh, gathering up, up north in Loveland that uh, I think it's the only uh, real uh, music festival on the Front Range with this kind of, of stuff. Um, a lot of it, of course, is also the electronic music that the kids like so much, which I have a very hard time appreciating. But um, they, they, Canal played there last year, played the year before. Um, I think it's the only time that they do play any longer, which is kind of a shame because I thought it was the best rock and roll I'd heard in, in 25 years, at least 25 years. What you don't hear or what you don't see when you listen is uh, at least half of what was going on there. Because Canal was not just great music, it was great theater. They had uh, a couple of dancers at least, uh, sometimes many more, and a lighting show that was tremendous. And um, that aspect of it, the the, the full sensory uh, multimedia aspect of it, was one of the most compelling uh, about it. We did do a DVD um, of one of the shows uh, at the Boulder Theater, but um, you can't do fire in indoors. You see, the thing about Canal that they could really turn it on on an outdoor stage, because these girls would dance with fire, and there's very little that is more compelling to watch. And uh, so the whole thing was a complete package. And for me, I hadn't seen anything like that in rock and roll for a very long time. And I was very excited by it. And I really felt sort of a, a, an obligation, being a child of the 60s and, and loving this kind of music and then moving away from it. I, when when uh, rap went mainstream and grunge came out, I was basically done with popular music. And I spent about 15 years in the, in the wilderness uh, of popular music doing classical music recording and seeking out geriatric bluesmen to, to, to entertain me. And uh, when Canal came along, I was just, I felt this absolute historic uh, uh, ur- urge, a need, an obligation to get behind this thing and push because it, it was, as I say, the best I'd seen in 25 years. But it taught me a lesson, a very, very important lesson. And this is an important one for any of your listeners who are aspiring musicians to remember. You can have it all. And I do mean all. 
You can have great songwriting. I described as the best I've heard in 25 years. You can have an outstanding band. You can have a theater department and a lighting thing and the whole thing backed by hundreds of thousands of dollars. They put out a couple of albums. You get on the road with a tour bus and a tour manager and a blah, 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 and you've got it all and you're still looking at a low order of probability of becoming famous rock and roll musician. That's what I learned on the road with Kanan. And it's a really important lesson to learn. Let that be a lesson to you. Don't well, quit your day job. Don't quit your day job. Don't, don't not do it. I felt the absolute obligation to do it, even after I realized it was a low order of probability, because of the greatness that I thought was achievable. But don't lose sight of the fact that it's a low order of probability. In any, unless you're related to some other musician that have a, a way in, it's a low order of probability. Well, good to know. So, Canal, uh, I know, has sort of uh, splintered into different groups. Oh, absolutely. In fact, at the time, um, because Canal was a very uh, precision-oriented band where the objective was a note-perfect presentation of the music in every performance, they had an alter ego. Uh, one where there wasn't a note-perfect presentation. In fact, it was a jam band. And um, the dance was brought to the center. It's called Lunar Fire. This is still around. You can see these guys uh, still performing. And if you like to see the ladies dance with the fire, this is your opportunity to do it. Um, so look for that in the area. Lunar Fire does play. And Lunar Fire gave rise to a, a, a subsequent project after Kandan sort of broke up, sort of didn't, as I say, they still play every year. But when people had more time, the rhythm section uh, turned on a hip-hop Spanish-English thing that I thought was very fresh and that I really thought needed to be recorded and uh, that a lot of people contributed to, but in a very different way than Kandan. Uh, Kandan had to be playable at the time. Whereas this stuff, sampled, br bring this, bring that, you send me your thing, I'll put it in here. It was very much more free form in terms of the recording. And in, uh, in concert, they can bring any of these tracks with them that they like and play them. And it, it, the rhythm section is on stage and it's a rocking show. So it really opened my eyes uh, a little bit uh, to modern rap, the hip-hop rap, because I'm more familiar and, and more appreciate the older form, the gospel uh, quartet singing, which is the rap. Um, but this, the hip-hop, that little crisscross hip-hop thing that I didn't really enter into that much, I thought they really hit something with this. And it reminded me that when I first heard rap in the 1980s, I thought it was great. That was public enemy. That was, that was stuff that really rankled. It sounded like the end of the world. And it, it, what they were saying was that the world was ending. And it was, <laughs> it was an absolute you know, freak out that I loved. But then it went all mainstream. And this stuff, this stuff is not mainstream. So I, the, the, the track I selected was, is called Balance. And I think that it, it demonstrates best what these cats really do. These cats are called Inti.
That was incredible. Well, that's into so many different kinds of sounds and styles. I mean, they, God, that's what what exciting music. They really don't follow any rules, and that's what I love about it. It's it's kind of like abstract painting, where you don't have to render something realistically. You have all the freedom in the world to throw it together: English, Spanish, hip hop, uh, Latin just jazz, Latin Guatemalan jazz. music. Well, I mean, it was yeah, like all over the place. Uh, you know, some of these ocarinas that she uses are really uh, unusual timbre. They have two notes that are very very close together and produces unusual sound, very eerie sound, and very distinctively uh, Latin American. Um, I don't think there's anywhere else in the world that they do that. That's so cool. So that's Inti. Inti. That's Inti. Inti still plays. Yes, they do. Um, I, I don't recall the, the last time that I saw them other than at the Arise Festival. That's when I go. But um, they do play in the area. And um, you should especially look out for them around Halloween. And uh, that, that tends to be a great show. And for those people listening that aren't in the Boulder, Denver area, where can they find Inti? Um, you'll be able to find them online. Um, uh, uh, if you if you Google Inti, they come up third or fourth. I, I've forgotten. Uh, Inti Band uh-huh. is a good one to go to. You can also go to the Lunar Fire website, and that'll take you there. Um, and the other thing that they had, they had a MySpace page and a Facebook page, and a God knows why they they do all of that stuff. Yeah. So you should be able to find them if you if you look for them. And there's quite a bit out there. Um, I would encourage the viewers also, by the way, to to look for Lunar Fire and Canal Video Online. If you want to see the girls dancing with the fire, it's there. It's an impressive show. I've seen Canal a few times live, and it's uh, it's a full sensory situation. I mean, you get you get it all. You do. But with Inti, it's, it's more the hip-hop thing becoming this uh, almost like a jazz medium for anything. You can throw in anything, and it still works. So cool. Well, we're uh, getting close to the end here, so I know you have one more artist that you've been working with. Yeah, Kai Lin. Kai Lin is an amazing uh, violin player, uh, classically trained at the Vienna Conservatory. He's actually, he comes from Singapore, part of the Chinese community in Singapore. Um, and his uh, approach to playing this instrument is different from anybody that I've ever met who has that education. It's as though he took the full conservatory education and put it in his back pocket. It doesn't oppress him. He doesn't have to play it like that. He can do pretty much anything that he feels like doing. And what he's able to do that I think is so unique, I've been a big fan of uh, Western and Eastern music fusion all of my life, coming as I do from an American and Lebanese family, uh, it, it has always turned me on. I've loved popular artists like Peter Gabriel who have brought these rhythms and these sounds to popular music. But where the fusing tends to happen is at the rhythm. And that's very natural. In rock and roll, you can take African rhythms and it just makes the whole thing better. Yeah. But it's not that tricky compared to trying to fuse it at the melody. You see, uh, Chinese music, Arabic classical music, these are forms that are all about melody. The, everything else is subservient to melody. You can suspend the rhythm, you can suspend harmonies, you can suspend anything in favor of the melody. 
And playing a lead melodic instrument like violin, Kailin is able to bring all of these different influences, the classical, the jazz, his Chinese music, and his particular love for Middle Eastern music, all together, and fuse it at the melody. It's a totally different kind of arrangement. The track that we have selected um, does some of that, though the melody is straight up. It's a, it's a Turkish um, um, folk song from the northern part of Turkey. Um, on some of the other tracks on this album, he does fuse Chinese, Arabic, and Western uh, themes. But on this one, you get a real sense for what kind of a virtuoso he is. And also his friend Jesse Mano is playing the, um, the, the stringed instrument, the name of which is escaping me now. I have the Arabic name, but the Turkish name is, is escaping me. Um, but the, the two of them together uh, are a very dynamic combination. And uh, they were able to bring more energy up in the studio than I have ever seen from musicians who weren't uh, touring at the time. Uh, they were able to bring a, a, a sensibility to this stuff that I thought was truly remarkable. And um, I, I really think that the future of music fusion is this sort of thing. It needs to be done by people who can fuse, who understand melody, who understand harmony, who can fuse it at the melody, and then it is something that can be sung by people in China or in India or in the Middle East or in Europe or here in North America. And that would really be something else because we don't share that many songs with them. They just listen to our music. And we need to get a little coming back. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. Well, Kareem, thank you so much for being on the show today. Super interesting. And thank you for sharing all this wonderful music. Uh, Inti, Kanal, uh, Kailin, Yong, and then, of course, all of the interesting classical music we heard at the beginning of the show. The Yale Russian Chorus and Igor Kitnes. Well... I'm Darren Roebuck, your host, and this has been Deep Orbit Studio Presents, and we're going to leave you here with a little piece called Sailing the Seven Seas by Kylan Young. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we will uh, catch you next week.